I don't need more things, but Mondo had a sale on their tiki mugs and they had yeah. a like silver metallic Doctor Doom tiki mug. And oh, I was buy one, on. get one. And I was like, well, if I buy Doom, I can get <laughs> any of these others. And I was like, this gives me a reason to buy Doom, yeah. which I've yeah, been looking yeah. at for weeks. <laughs> so we're, we're getting a Doctor Doom tiki mug up in this house, awesome. which is nice. Love it. Yeah. Marvelites, you are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale January 5th, 2022. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, welcome to the first episode of the year. How you feeling? Beep boop. Hello. It is future Tucker. <laughs> Why? Why? Why did my brain immediately go there? <laughs> Does 2022 sound vaguely more futuristic than 2021? I don't know. Probably not. We're like sort of all in in the same like, you know, like Wastelanders future era. Here. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Everything's on fire or flipping around. It's, it's chaos out there. And it's fine. It's great. It's okay. Did we talk about this? Do you make New Year's resolutions? No, not really. I mean... Although I think I've fallen maybe more into it this year than other years. So I'm not against it. I, I'm, I'm into the idea. How about you? I don't really do them, but I try to live a better life. Yeah. You know, yeah. every day. You try to gra- grab life by the horns. Damn it. Yeah. Uh, maybe your New Year's resolution could be to not take showers that are 80 <laughs> minutes long. Listeners, okay. 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 <laughs> zero minute long showers. <laughs> okay. This is an affront, first of all. Okay, because this is something I am plagued by. I I wish it weren't so, but you know what? It is. It's the truth. Anybody out there in listener land, if you are also somebody in the hour plus long shower range, you know, hit me up. We can talk about this. We can, you know, help help each other find a a, a solution that goes beyond using a a bar of soap every day. How's that for a fact? for context folks we were talking about this before we started recording that's why this came up and i'm just continuing to unravel the the sordid details of what my life is like come you know two three four a.m wow wow yeah i i want to hear uh if anybody else takes uh wildly long showers uh, you can use the hashtag Marvel's pull list. Make sure to tag Tucker Marcus and Agent M and uh, Jasmiest uh, so that we can hear all about this. I'm, I'm learning more and more about you, Mr. Young Tucker. But look, we're not here to talk about shower length uh, for much longer. We'll probably come back to it at another point. If you are just joining us, we are the official Marvel Comics podcast, and we're going to talk about our new books this week. We're going to pick three favorites of our own, and we're going to give out a bunch of awards. We're going to talk about what's on Marvel Unlimited, including the Infinity Comics, as well as the collections that are available this week, and then get into a reading club so exciting that all three of us were like, yes, this is the one that we're releasing oh, this week. What is it? Oh boy, about? I'm so excited. This is truly one of my favorite reading clubs we've ever, ever done, listener. I am happy to go hyperbolic with this one. It's with the one and only Rainbow Rowell. We are talking with Rainbow about FF by Matt Fraction and the All Reds. We're also going deep 
on She-Hulk with Rainbow. Obviously, She-Hulk, uh, written by Rainbow Rowell, is coming fast in, in 2022. Uh, and uh, if that wasn't enough, we also could not help ourselves but to continue to beat the drum of, I believe I say it in the reading club, the best runaways run of all time, which of course is also written by Rainbow. It's a love fest. We are just enormous fans, and this is a really, really special reading club. Hell yes. Before we get into the reading club, let's get into our new comics with our picks of the week. First up is Electra Black, White, and Blood. Uh, I feel like I have to say it like that, uh, because why not? It's a hell of a book of the newest Black, White, and Blood series from us here at Merry Old Marvel. And we've got three stories in here. First up is Red Dawn by Charles Soule, Mark Bagley, John Dell, and Edgar Delgado. It's so good. It's a vampire story. That first page, the first big page, you can tell it's Mark Bagley, but at the same time, it almost doesn't look like him. He, We don't get to see him do a lot of horror and this is a horror story of an electra who goes up against vampires this immediately made me go okay so where is the entire story about this universe about this world in which um, there are these vampires and electra has a bunch of secrets i won't get into but it's the beautiful depiction of how electra sees the world I'm sure it's been shown before, but I thought it was so elegantly done, and especially when you use red as a color. I don't, I'm don't. i trying not to give things away here. Um, we don't want to spoil too much, but know that it's Electra versus Vampires by Charles and Mark and the crew. And it's, you know what? This might be my favorite story of the year. I know wow. it's only wow. <laughs> the first one we're talking about of what will come to be close to a thousand. Oh, but wow. hey, really? that's fine. I didn't really. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Okay, okay, continue. Uh, Then there's a story by Leonardo Romero, who we've talked about on the show, who I recently was chatting with a little off to the side. He, If you find him on Instagram, you'll see that he's working on a new Spider-Man animated show coming to Disney+. Plus. I I know a bit more about his work on there, and holy moly, everybody's faces are just going to melt off. Um, Leo is incredible. (laughs) We've talked vociferously about his work, but he has this this classic old school style. Leo's proving that even at his very young age, he is pretty much a master. He's so, so good. He tells a a cool story. There's some mobby stuff in there. There's Electra being total badass. Uh, And then the third story is The Crimson Path by Declan Shalvey doing the writing and Simone D'Armini on art. And they tell this really cool story that is uh, Electra fighting basically an unending army. And it's a really beautiful, sad, sweet ending of things for a bunch of characters. And it's, yeah, I, I absolutely, I love this one. And it has a moment where you go, oh, oh, you just want to hug the comic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Then you just have blood all over you. So don't, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Electra is one of those characters that comes to mind. Obviously, she's a bunch of people's favorite ever Marvel character. But just one of those that just reminds you of just like, good God, the bench is deep. <laughs> the old house of ideas. Yeah. Like we could and should, by God, have a just like an uh, Electra monthly book. Yeah. And now we're jumping over to my pick this week. Wastelanders Doom 
number one. This is a continuation, obviously, of the Wastelanders issues that have been popping up over the past couple of months. I've been a huge fan of each of them. This issue takes place prior, if you're keeping track, to Old Man Quill and Avengers of the Wastelands. And it's written by our friend Torin Grunbeck with art by Julius Ota, who I think absolutely crushes this Mm -hmm. what a talent um colors here are by brian valenza and letters by vcs Corey pettit it's a perfect combination and this is one of the things that i immediately thought when i saw that uh torn was going to be writing a dr doom issue it just made perfect sense when i think of torn's writing i think of just no holding back i think just like Page one, panel one, you are in the story, and Torin is making land grabs for the kind of story she wants to tell immediately, just saying, boom, this, this whole concept, this idea, that's mine, and we're going for it, I'm grabbing you by the scruff of the neck, and you're coming with me, and I think of Victor Von Dunham as a character in sort of a similar sense of just like, what he says goes, so it just makes perfect sense, not just in terms of the character, but also in terms of the setting, and this one... You're getting Mad Max, you know, that post-apocalyptic, arid, desert, dry confrontation. Uh, And then when you go from there, it's so fascinating. It takes a bunch of twists. That was one of the most fascinating elements of this story for me is that it felt sort of like four stories packed into one and really in the best way because the pacing I think is done wonderfully. Shout out to Julius again for crafting that pacing, that tone. And there's a bunch more characters that you see Doom come up against in this issue than I ever really expected, which I loved. Um, You get so much story packed into one issue here. It is really, really worth the price of admission. Victor Von Doom is one of those characters for me that I'm just a total mark for. If you put that name at the top of a comic on the cover, Mm -hmm. um, I'm probably going to pick it up. And, uh, you know, this one absolutely delivers on that premise. It delivers on everything you could want from this story, this character, this setting. Just can't say enough good things about it. And um, once more, from the mountaintops, Julius Ota, crush. All right. It is time for our third pick of the week, Inferno number four. How do we talk about this without spoiling it is the question. (laughs) I was thinking about what we do on the show, and it's we're not here to be critical about books. We're here to give you reasons to, to check them out, right? Like that's, that's our remit is to tell you why we're excited about Marvel comics and why we want you to, to, to be excited. I'm excited about Inferno because one it's, it is sort of like that big culmination of what Jonathan Hickman has been, you know, putting together for the X-Men books as the quote unquote head of X for, you know, the last couple of years. It is him looking at what he he helped start and saying, this is where I say goodbye, at least for now. He moves on, does whatever he does, and, and puts characters in really interesting places. You have Professor X and Magneto going up against uh, Nimrod and Omega Sentinel. Nimrod is this cool future Sentinel that is almost unkillable and, and scary. And even if Magneto and, and Professor X are together, they're still, that's like really difficult odds. So that, that battle takes up a large chunk of the book. All the while, you are following along as uh, Mystique and Destiny are going through some big things with Moira McTaggart. 
and like working through how Moira fits into the past, the present and the future of mutant kind. I, yeah. I don't want to give anything away because mm. the, the dialogue here, and of course it is written by Jonathan Hickman art throughout. This is by Valerio Schiti and Stefano Caselli with colors by David Curiel and letters by VCs, Joe Sabino. Great, great design as always by Tom Muller. I remember the early descriptions of what the plans were for the X-Men, how they could sort of like go like an accordion almost, and they could, expand and contract and they could be you know i remember jonathan saying like look if this doesn't work here's how we could finish it off right away Mm -hmm. or what we could do and if it did work we could go you know and expand 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 it's really interesting for me to look at how it's gone in in new directions and how it's hit the big beats that we've known all along this is me dancing around the raindrops not saying a (laughs) damn thing about the book other than read it it is Mm -hmm. very crucial to what is to come for x the x-men books um and i'm incredibly excited also kind of nervous for the characters not nervous for the books but nervous for mutant kind yeah i totally totally know what you mean i mean it's 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 brilliant stuff and and you know it's so funny how like how crucial this piece of the puzzle is and it's really really excellent stuff um now we are heading from our picks of the week into all of the fresh floppies coming your way so much good stuff this week we had a hard time actually picking our picks of the week this time around because there was so much good stuff so much stuff in the conversation so a lot to highlight here and to each comic magazine we will be handing out a special award this week with all of that shower talk at the top of the ep we will be handing out the dennis franz award folks if you don't know what that means then head over to your favorite bing search and uh give it a type my first dennis franz award will be going to the beyond board cody ziegler and company for their work on amazing spider-man this is issue number 84 Uh, Another edition of Amazing Spider-Man Beyond. Uh, Cody Ziegler, of course, is the writer. He works alongside Paco Medina on on this one, who I think is just born to do Spider-Man comics. What's great about this era of Amazing Spider-Man is the breath of fresh air that this entire creative team, the editorial staff, has brought to the book. Um, Right alongside that, and a huge piece of that, of course, is Ben Riley, who is an amazing character that I think is getting his due here. Uh, And it's so good. And ultimately what I'm getting at here is what Cody taps into so wonderfully what the beyond board taps into and has been tapping into so wonderfully with this entire story is what we love about Spider-Man. And it's in this book, the laughs, the emotion, the great, great villains. We get Otto Octavius in here. And it's just joyful and wonderful, and it's a celebration of the Spider-Man mantle, whether it's Ben, whether it's Pete, whoever it might be. It's a celebration of that suit, and I think that's the greatest compliment I can give to Amazing Spider-Man Beyond. And I will give a little teaser, because next week, for Mm. those of you waiting to hear about the sandwich room in the Beyond headquarters, (laughs) get ready. It's, it's, it's It's as good as I'd hoped for. And if it doesn't make it into the MCU at some point, <laughs> it's a travesty. I'll leave it at that. Let's go on to our next book. And we have Black Widow number 13. 
I'm going to give my Dennis Friends Award just to the fact that this book takes place in the past and puts Natasha in her classic um, 80s, 90s gray jumpsuit with the high collars and the, the widow emblem on her chest and the, the her stingers big and prominent on her wrists. This is a great flashback issue of her encounter with the living blade. And you can tell why after reading this issue, Natasha is so friggin' like wigged out by having seen him again in the current times. I'm excited for this new uh, encounter to happen because that last one is brutal and it's intense and the way it shakes out, you're like, oh, 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 Natasha, you're in for a dangerous, dangerous battle ahead. Oh, yes. Strength to strength there and more great stuff on the way in Captain America. Iron Man number two on Helen Zueta uh, presents one of the another absolutely gorgeous issue here. It's so beautiful to look at. So much good stuff. I got to also mention Rochelle Rosenberg, uh, one of the MVPs of Marvel Comics with the colors. Absolutely kills it. My Dennis France award for this issue goes to Think Tank. That's the character who's just a sort of globe with a brain and mm-hmm. eyeballs on that brain. Oh, man, can't get enough of Think Tank. But more than that, we get Tony and Steve Rogers on like a sort of undercover, like creeping through hallways heist sort of vibe mission here. Come on. Come on. I can read that every single week. Yeah. We've got Captain Marvel number 35 this week. Uh Somebody's going to have to do like a full list of all the things that Kelly Thompson, writer of Captain Marvel, will have contributed to the mythos of Carol Danvers and and Captain Marvel whenever her reign ends, whenever Mm. her, her time on the book is over, which if we are lucky will not be for many, 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 many years. We want Kelly to write this title for as long as humanly possible. But even in these first three years or so, it's just like she keeps adding new things Mm -hmm. to the world uh, around Carol. And it's incredible. And here we saw something big happen in the previous issue, but we really like seeing it come to fruition and develop throughout this issue is another one of those things where I'm just like, this didn't exist. It's not just a cool story of Carol punching one of her villains and fighting and, and going through stuff. It's. She's doing all these things and adding so much more, which, yes, of course, that's what we want out of our stories. But when it's done so damn well, it's hard not to get excited. I will give my Dennis Friends Award for this issue to just the big freaking battle royale parts to it. Um, Even though I just said, yes, she's adding all these cool stuff. I do like to see a big punch them up, blast them up, good guys versus bad guys, brouhaha with a great last page. And that's what this is. And speaking of big old brouhaha's in the mighty Marvel manner. Next up, we have the Darkhold Omega number one, another one of these books that was in the conversation for pick of the week. Look, this Darkhold sort of mini saga that we've been on over the past few months has been so, so excellent. I feel like it's, it's pound for pound, one of the best conflagrations going on in a certain corner of the Marvel Universe that pop up every now and then. This one obviously centering around um, the the damned tome of, of the Darkhold. It's been so excellent. And this is a, a final issue of that little saga 
that is totally, totally worthy of the conversation that's been going on here. It's really, really excellent. There's one or two characters that pop up in here that were totally unexpected that I loved seeing and I think speak to Steve's depth of knowledge, his command of the story, his ability to uh, expand that story, to take it from a huge, huge punch up like we start uh, this issue with and then pull it into different character directions, introduce us to different concepts, uh, at times pull at the heartstrings. And there are some some big character moves that come along with it as we sort of set sail off into the distance here. So my Dennis Franz award uh, goes to them as a whole, which I think have been wonderful. And high, high compliment that I'll pay to it all is that this is a very, very worthy finale. It really is. If you're a Scarlet Witch fan, yeah. <laughs> read this damn book. I say damn because it's the book of the damned, the dark hold. All right, we've got the Marvels number seven out this week. Uh, and it's the big reintroduction of Arcus, a.k.a. the Golden Age Vision character created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. That right there gets my Dennis Franz Award because I love a Simon Kirby creation. I love the original vision. He's weird. He comes from this like smoke dimension. Uh, he was, I believe an investigator. Um, it's just a gnarly cool 1940s character brought in to these modern stories and actually has a really interesting place to play in this book that the Marvels can encompass any character at any given time. And there's stuff from like every corner of the Marvel universe. And I think next issue, we're going to get a spotlight on the new Warbird who's in here. And she's nice. pretty damn Ryan, cool too. Ryan, do me a favor real quick. Do, just do do the intro to the show real quick. Just just do your little do do and then kick it to me like you do at the top of every show. Just real quick. Okay. Hello, Marvelites. You're listening to Marvel's Pull List for New Marvel Comics on sale January 5th, 2022. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Arcus. Okay, we're moving on now to Shang-Chi, number seven. Another one of those uh, books that uh, were deeply in the conversation. Easily could have been one of the picks of the week. So much excellent stuff in here. This is the start of a new story arc uh, after the six-issue opening arc. Jean Luan Yang, who we had on the show, is... Not only one of the nicest people I've literally ever talked to in my capacity um, as associate editor and co-host of Marvel's Pull List, but uh, he is freaking it. Gene has just absolutely killed this Shang-Chi story. Every single issue is delivering something new. It's getting you, pulling you deeper and deeper into the story. Um, And in the case of going into story arc number two, it is... Going from strength to strength. I mean, it's excellent, excellent stuff. Producer Jasmine said it better than I could at the before we even started recording, just saying like, okay, that first story arc ruled. Uh, what's happening now? And then reading this issue and going, oh, yeah, okay, all right, all right. So much good stuff. And right alongside that, for me, this is one of the, the, the most beautiful books that we have. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. You can feel the vision that everyone here um, working on this title shares. Uh, as a cohesive unit, and um, that's 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 a, a special sort of alchemy that is hard to come by. So my Dennis France Award goes to that that thing, that perfect magical casting, writing, everything on the art side, the editorial. It's all just coming in lockstep here. I think it's really excellent stuff. Yeah, we've got uh, one Star Wars book this week with Star Wars Doctor Afra number seventeen as Afra. 
and Sanastaros go up against uh, one of one of Afra's numerous arch enemies. But this character is really cool because they have uh, a weapon that I really, really dig. The weapon is so cool. It gets my Dennis Franz award. It is called the Whip of Sorrows. And it can absorb energy and release energy. And I think that's one of the coolest things about Star Wars comics is we get to explore a lot more weapons and artifacts than we generally get to see in some of the live action fiction. Um, of course, there are lightsabers and sometimes we get, you know, like, oh, look, it's Chewie's bowcaster or, or Han's blaster or something like that. But you get stuff like this. This Whip of Sorrows is really neat. And I, I love seeing stuff like that in our Star Wars books. Yes. Next up, we have Thor number 20. You know, this is one of those books that I'm on board for every single time. And this is another one that does not disappoint. So excellent. We go from the opening page with the narration, first line, and lo, the hammer spoke. Come on. I am on board immediately. We're jumping between realms. Thor is off on a very specific, you know, adventurous mission. He's dealing with personal stuff. And the central thing that's going on here is these recent issues he's been having with the mystical mallet with Mjolnir. Um, one of my favorite things happens and this is right in the middle of it, uh, of the issue is like an entire page that's just dedicated to Thor summoning Mjolnir and it's just a whole page that is really just ruled by like sound effects and it's Thor and you just hear it go from a low rumble to just this thunderous roar and into the way that the speed lines are drawn in the next page are actually carving out uh, more sound effect. I mean, it's just really excellent stuff. And of course it is because Nick Klein is, um, uh, talk about a freak. Oh my God. So there's so much to love in here. My Dennis Franz award goes to just that. It goes to the spirit of this book. We are loving every single moment of it. It's so, so excellent. Yeah. All right. Last book for me is Warhammer 40,000 Sisters of Battle number five. This is the final issue of this limited series, um, but it is uh, just full of bodies exploding and heads getting shot underwater and, and limbs being cut off. But I will give my Dennis Franz award to a page um, kind of in the middle of the book. And one of the, the sisters is facing some near insurmountable odds and, and she's basically knows that in order to save some of her friends in order to carry on the mission she has to sacrifice herself but uh torin grunbeck our, our pal she writes some really great beats in here the captions say and i won't say the character's name character praise she prays the emperor lends speed to another character she prays she has earned a place in his light and that he will bless the fire. And it's really well done and well paced by Edgar Salazar, the artist. And it's just this really cool ending for a character. And just you can feel like it has a very cinematic, sweeping uh, just vibe to it all. And I thought that was really yes. cool. Yes. All right. Wrapping it up this week. Going back to Krakoa for X-Men number six. Now, I, I, I think this is one of those like. I've loved each issue of X-Men so far. There's so much story to tell. There's so many possibilities. And the direction that Jerry has taken it in has been excellent. But this is one of those that, again, I just feel like you can feel the perfect amount of that flavor of the past few years of everything that's gone on with the X-Men from House and Powers through to Ten of Swords through to the, the current moment. 
it really feels like a coming together of so many different elements as we continue forward in this story. I think it's just excellent, excellent stuff. There's also one of those sort of interstitial text pages in here that I love. It's one of my favorite ones in a long time. It's like a lawyer ad. <laughs> it says, has someone stolen your precious celestial body? Call us today. Blurred Murdoch, space lawyer. Um, <laughs> justice is blind and so are we. Uh, it's so great. Dennis Franz Award goes out to Jerry and Pepe, who I think absolutely crush. And that wraps it up for new Marvel mags headed your way on January 5th. A big week. What a way to kick off the year. Uh, so much excellent stuff. Really, you can just take each of these issues, throw them into a burlap sack, reach your hand in and grab any single one of them. And I think you'll be delighted. There's just so much good stuff. Um, now looking over towards new infinity comics available on the Marvel unlimited app. Uh, we have four on the way this week, X-Men unlimited infinity comic. Um, that's number 16 spine tingling Spider-Man number six. And then we have spider bot number five. And then one more, a special 2022 issue. Yeah, the Infinite Possibilities Infinity comic is kind of like a bonus content, a little bit of hype and, and excitement for what the year uh, has in store for us in 2022. So uh, definitely check that out because you, of course, have Marvel Unlimited. And while you're there on Marvel Unlimited checking out the Infinities, maybe it's time to catch up on some books you missed a couple of months ago. This week, two big ones I want to point out, the Darkhold Alpha number one so you can get in on all the dark hold issues as they start dropping in mu we've talked about them a whole bunch and inferno number one which is like really gigantically huge big 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 it is now an mu so go yes. check it out all right wrapping it up for new releases this week looking at the collection section we have a load of stuff dropping this week including avengers by jason aaron volume nine world war she hulk uh, oh man, just another excellent volume to add to your collection of Jason Aaron Avengers stories. Wonderful stuff. We have Black Cat, Volume 6, Infinity Score. It's a great, great Jed McKay special. Another one that pops out to me is Gamma Flight, uh, which was a really, really excellent limited series. So a lot to enjoy with collections as well. Heck yeah. All right, now it is time for the return of one of our favorites here on Marvel's Pull List. Rainbow Rowell is here to talk about FF and some She-Hulk stuff in our reading club. Go read up on your FF. That is the actual book, FF, that is written by Matt Fraction with art by Mike and Laura Allred. Read up on those issues and get excited for the new She-Hulk issue now as we talk to Rainbow Rowell. Okay, Ryan, I'm resting control of this introduction to say out of all the time that we have spent on this show talking about Rainbow Rowell, I am rejoicing today because we have an entire interview dedicated to talking about Rainbow Rowell. And it just so happens that the person we're talking about Rainbow Rowell is also named Rainbow Rowell. Hi, Rainbow. Thank you so much for joining the show. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> but now I'm nervous. <laughs> you should be. Because uh, Tucker's going to get real weird. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Rainbow, I probably yell a lot about Runaways on this show over the last couple of years just because of how much we adore it and how much I love Thank it. You. Which you Thank know, you. I've had you on shows before and I've told you. I mean, it's one of those things. 
I think about a lot, like when you love something, someone's work, what they're doing, you should tell them, you should scream it from the rooftops if you can, um, because what good does it do if they don't know how much you love the things that they do? First of all, thank you. And also I totally agree with that spirit because creative work is so lonely. Um, and so thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah. I, I was just, we had, we were talking about Dan Slott the other day and I had mm. every once in a while, I'll like text him or, or, you know, being like that issue was great. Bye. And, yeah. <laughs> or, uh, I, I will text someone or just like send expletive laden emails to, to people who are writing or drawing books, just being like, it's so good. You're a monster. Bye. I love you. And then I don't think leave. that ever gets old. Like, I don't think people will say to you, oh, you probably get tired of people talking to you. I'm like, no, frankly, not that many people talk to me because I spend months alone with something. Maybe I go on tour, maybe I don't. You actually don't interact with readers that often. And so when someone says, oh, you must be so tired. I'm like, no, I, I spent a year and a half alone with those characters. I'm desperate to talk about them. Please talk to me about them. <laughs> How do you do generally? I mean, this is sort of like a, this is going to be like Not a- Not well, a, Tucker. A, a, <laughs> 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 this is like a, a like a windsock for me here for the rest of our conversation because how how do you especially as a midwesterner how do you yeah. do with people being super effusive to you about you uh is that something that you're totally comfortable with is that something that you have to like teach yourself to be comfortable with how does that go I like how in your world that just happens to be all the time and I have to come up with coping <laughs> skills for it <laughs> I mean that happens to me sometimes with certain books when I go on tour, with certain characters, maybe. Mm -hmm. It's funny because, I'm, I, like I said, I am desperate to talk about these characters. Often I want to talk about them the same way that a reader does. Because once I've written something, it feels very apart from me. It doesn't feel like it's still mine necessarily. And so I want to talk about like, oh, and then when that character did that and that, because I'm excited and I'm into it when I'm writing it. That's frankly why I, I wanted to get into comics because I wanted to work with other people. I spend most of my time alone working on novels and working on comics gave me an opportunity to just talk to someone about my work. So now I can talk to Nick Lowe, my editor, or I can talk to the artists that I'm working with. And I get so much out of that. You're learning about the characters as you're talking about them and you'll get ideas and if someone's being very complimentary, that's a little difficult, I think. You want you want a little of it, then you kind of want to be like, okay, thank you, but let's talk. Well, it's fascinating. And similar to how Ryan and I love talking about you on this show, we also love talking about editor Nick Lowe. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that sort of spirit extends to the entire team on your Runaways run because there are just so many industry-level top talent uh, people that have worked on that, that series. Mm -hmm. But also it feels like so many just wonderful, delightful people at the same time, like people who who yeah. spiritually, I mean, who who have the talent to, to make Runaways such an exceptional book, but also who just as people somehow also feel like they perfectly fit in with the spirit of what that book is. Yeah, I feel like that was a, a magical experience working on Runaways. I, that was my first real comics experience. And, and I could tell even as it was happening, how special it was because- Everyone who worked on Runaways cared really passionately about doing a good job. You know when you're working with someone and they're either phoning it in or they don't have the time or the focus or they just don't care. You just know, right? And that was never the case on Runaways. It always felt like everyone just came to work and cared so much. A lot of the times when I'm talking about characters, I'm talking about them in personal terms. You know, I'll be like, oh, Gert 
would never wear this, or Gert feels this way, or Gert is in, insecure about this. And, and I could see another team kind of being like, oh, Rainbow, shut up. <laughs> Gert isn't real. In that team and in that environment, we were all talking about the characters that much. We were all like talking about them as if they were like kids we were in charge of. You know, like Chris Anka, who was the artist who was right on board with me um, at the beginning, bringing them back. We would have very long conversations about what they were wearing, you know, referencing past outfits they'd worn in the first run. We were able to talk about it at this very granular level. And again, it was like we we're talking about people we cared about all the time. I mean, just really everyone from, you know, the, the letterer. We worked with two color people, mm-hmm. Matt first and then Dee, which is unusual, right? Like sometimes I read other books, I'm like, oh, they're changing color all the time. And I want to talk about that when we get to FF too, mm-hmm. having the same colorist for big chunks of time they become such a part of the team and they become, you know, just this really integral to the consistency of the book. So I'll stop myself because I could kind of just keep going about Runaways. There was just never a day when I wasn't loving it. And um, I cried a couple of times. I cried when Chris left. I cried for a couple months about it. Like mm-hmm. it would just, people would say, how is Runaways? And I would just start crying. <laughs> and it was, I really had to grieve because I just knew I'm not going to have an experience like this again. I might have great experiences on, on a comic, but I'm never going to have the experience I had on Runaways. That was really magical. Yeah, I mean, it is truly magical. Um, but you had mentioned She-Hulk mm-hmm. uh, because your next big Marvel project is writing She-Hulk with artist Rohe Antonio, which we are very, very excited <laughs> about. What's coming up for She-Hulk in so much as that you can talk about right now? So Dan Slott's She-Hulk is one of my all-time favorite comics runs ever when he first brought her back and rebooted her with, um, I think, Juan... Juan Bobillo. Yeah. I just think that run is perfect. That Those first few issues just perfectly set her up, tell us who she is, remind us why we love her. That That's a very important run for me and one of the reasons I love the character so much. But she's just funny in a way that women don't often get to be funny. But She's just this special character. So, you know, growing up, what really always attracted to me to to She-Hulk was that she got to be smart and funny and she gets to be kind of carefree. Even in her romantic and sexual life, she gets to be like really independent and confident. And so I just loved that character. And that's what we have coming. We have a lot of She-Hulk jokes. We have a lot of She-Hulk being really smart. I I mean, as smart as I can make her, I'm not as smart as she is. (laughs) And as funny as I can make her, I should say. (laughs) It's going to be fun. The art is gorgeous. Roche is so talented and so good at drawing hair, which was really important to me. (laughs) (laughs) She has to have the best hair that you've ever seen, or it's not She-Hulk. So good at drawing action. So good at drawing little funny moments. So good at drawing. um, He just draws great environments. Um, So you really, even though he's in Brazil and I'm in Nebraska, this book really looks like New York City to me. Hmm. Someone from New York City will have to weigh in. But yeah, it's just like, it should feel big and fun and like Jen herself, hopefully smart and funny. Mm -hmm. So as we we angle now towards FF, you obviously have a very deep connection to so many of these characters. I'm curious about where that all started. Did you grow up reading comics? Did you grow up going to local comic shops? Um, Were you just a sort of like, you know, total book nerd obsessed kind of thing and you ended up there later how did that all begin um 
Yeah, I did grow up reading comics. My dad was a big comics reader. So my house was always full of comic books, but it was kind of, it's kind of a weird story because that sounds like nostalgic and nice, but he didn't think girls were into comics. So he was always discouraging me. Like he'd be like, no, 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 don't read that. And he'd buy me like a Casper comic, which Casper comics are great, but I was like, no, I really want to read what you're reading. Um, and so, yeah, there were always comics around me. Um, and then in junior high, I fell in with a group of guys who were very into comic books and um, would who would let me borrow their comics. So then I would just read whatever they were reading. So I read a lot of X-Men, a lot of Batman, none of it stuck. Um, martial law, I was like very into martial law. Uh, so I was just reading, honestly, I had none of my own picking things out, just, you know, people lending me things. And then in college, um, when I had a little bit of spending money of my own, I really went hard on the mutants. So I had about 15 years of reading every Marvel mutant book, which is just, that's all I read for those. You, like that was physically all I could manage to read for those 15 years because there were so many mutant books. And then uh, I got into to comics because my book, Eleanor Park has a scene where kids are bonding through comics. And Nick Lowe read that book and contacted me and was like, you clearly have read some Marvel comics. Do you want to write for us? Mm. That's a fun conversation, I'm sure. And Nick is probably like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Like Nick is like, He's the sweetest man in the world. And I love just, working with Nick. Oh. Jasmine's lighting up the chat. And I know. <laughs> she's been she's been bugging us to ask that question. I figured she she would get the, it. The, the three words at the end of Eleanor and Park are "smell you later." I'll tell you. <laughs> Spoil it. Tell the whole world. Um, I love working with Nick Lowe. I, I was nervous about coming into comics and looking like a fool. And Nick said, I won't let you look like a fool. And that meant a lot to me that he was going to, everybody has to start somewhere. I, I, I didn't feel like it was impossible to write a comic book. You know, everyone has to write their first comic book who writes comic books, right? So, but I didn't want to look foolish writing my favorite characters. And so knowing that Nick wasn't going to let me really freed me to try and, and, and actually take creative risks because I knew I had someone who would keep me from, um, you know, having spinach in my teeth. So, and he's a lovely person. So I, I, I'm working with Nick again um, on She-Hulk. Good, good. Uh, yeah, I, I imagine he's probably going to never let you go. So um, ah, it's mutual. It's a good pairing right there. Um, but we do have to get to to our reading club selection. You chose FF by Matt Fraction and Mike Allred, Joe Quinones, and Laura Allred uh, with letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Tell us, uh, why did you choose this title? So last year when I knew I was going to write She-Hulk, I decided to read every She-Hulk appearance. <laughs> <laughs> I, like my brain, started, like, I, the, the, like the book started swirling around my head. Like, okay, what does that mean? All right, so all those Avengers, then that Fantastic World. Oh, gosh, so many more than you even realized. Yeah. yeah. I have this theory that all of these characters are impossible to write in continuity and in character because they're it's too much. If you were to say that everything that has happened in canon to um, Reed Richards actually happened, it breaks your head, it doesn't work. You know, you can't be perfectly in canon or canon faithful. So what I like to do is like read as much as I can of a character and then figure out what really feels true to the soul of, of this character. What sticks, what, what feels like, what are the things that you have to have to write a She-Hulk book? And what are the things that you just sort of forgot as soon as you read it? Cause it didn't feel true to who she is. So I thought, okay, well, if I'm, I'm going to do that, I need to just Hermione and I need to like read everything. Um, 
and it was fun, but a lot of times I would find myself just like skimming, right? Where is she? Where is she? Okay, there she is. She did nothing great. I'm so glad that I wasted 20 minutes of this. Uh, <laughs> and so by the time I got to FF, which is pretty late in She-Hulk's life, I will tell you, I am not a Fantastic Four person. That is not my Marvel neighborhood. Uh, I'm not really an Avengers person. I am was hardcore X-Books. So I just did not know these characters. I know them from having read every She-Hulk thing, but I don't know them from ha having read the books. So by the time I get to FF, I'm kind of in like a just, I'm hardly reading. I'm just looking for She-Hulk and taking notes. And I stop and I read the whole thing cover to cover. Like I, I read it all. I like read it like I was reading it to enjoy it. Not like I was doing research. It just stopped me in my tracks. And I couldn't understand why, because in a way, FF is everything I don't like about Fantastic Four books. I'm not really into a million characters and a bunch of kids and goofy monsters from the, I don't know, negative zone or wherever they come from, the ocean, the ground. Everywhere in this vibe. book. Right. But that's all that this book is. This book is like, if you were to distill like the Fantastic Four vibe and then add a bunch of zany, that's what this book is. So I still don't know why I love it so much other than it's perfect. It's kind of like, it's kind of perfect. Yeah. It's sort of a stunning thing that like when reading this book, and I think this is something that happens with, or I think maybe it's characteristic generally of, of Matt Fraction's writing is it, it somehow is so like wonderfully slice of life and like the little mm -hmm. moments, the little jokes, the little interactions, these scenes that just feel like everyday dialogue that could or couldn't be happening necessarily in the Marvel universe specifically. Um, then it adds up somehow like those little subtle things add up somehow to like a great superhero comic a great like um sort of like cosmic comic or a, or a spacefaring comic or whatever it might be it's really a crazy thing and it it makes sense to me though as a fan of yours as well that you would connect with this book specifically because i sort of think of i sort of think of your writing in a similar way of just like Perfectly able Thank to you. capture slice of life interpersonal interactions as well as like adding up to the big, huge, like superhero, supervillain beats that we all think of in Marvel comic. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So Jonathan Hickman had sort of done a whole bunch of work with the Fantastic Four before this, which is some great comics and it's really big and wild and a lot more serious. And then Matt Fraction comes in as the writer and sort of starts to take the books in a different direction. You have the Fantastic Four, which is about the core family. And then you have FF, which is about the Future Foundation. And um, right from the jump in this, you you learn that the FF needs to have some, some new people in place to sort of run the Future Foundation and the, the role of the Fantastic Four in the stead as uh, Reed Richards has to take the family off, off the board, essentially. And you have Matt and Mark Bagley doing the main book with the family on big adventures. And then you have this book, which is about the, just this almost slapdash team in some ways. But there's a really interesting conversation that happens within the title of like, they didn't choose these two and these two and this one and this one. They chose us four. So the four characters who take over as the Fantastic Four and as the heads of the Future Foundation are She-Hulk, Medusa, Ant-Man and Darla Deering, who goes by a number of names. At some point, Ms. Thing is thrown around in there, but they they have to 
watch over a whole group of some of the smartest kids in in the Marvel Universe. They get into wacky adventures. They have to do the job of the Fantastic Four, which is sort of nebulous in its sort of description because there really is one. They're just the Fantastic Four. Um, and so we pick up with the, the book starts with this new crew coming together to talk to the kids and learn about like, here's what we, we have to do. And also the best part is Reed says, we're only going to be gone four minutes in your time. But just in case, and of course, wouldn't you know it, just in case they need to be in this role for a bit longer. Good summary. Good summary. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You know, having been in Marvel a long time and I've read I've read everything we've put out in the last 15 years, plus tons more, The I have a lot of very fond memories of FF, of Fantastic Four, specifically from my time, less so. I'm, I'm similar to you in some ways, Rainbow, in that. X-Men were my thing as, as a youngster um, and growing up and then sticking with that throughout my entire life of comics. Spider-Man 2, um, but was never an Avengers reader growing up, was never really a Fantastic Four reader growing up. I got into those characters in various ways over time. Um, but for Fantastic Four, this run, I didn't have any connection to it in my brain. I was like, all right, we're going to be reading. It's Matt Fraction, whom I love, and and God, Mike mm -hmm. and Laura Allred, please. They are some of my favorites as a as a duo for art. So, all right, I'm excited. And then I read it, and I was just like, similar to you, I forgot how great this is. So good. It's so good, and it's so warm. But at the same time, you also have Scott Lang, like, devastated by the loss of his daughter and trying to figure out how to continue on and also act as as a, a steward for all these children and it's mixing all those moments and then the monsters and all the, like i i got through this and i was like this is i should be putting this on my bookshelf mm -hmm. instead of in my long boxes it's so good mm -hmm. i completely agree the vibe like is of a circus there are so many characters on the page. And as someone who's written a team, it, that's like juggling, you know, deciding who gets to come in and, and who needs to be in each scene. And then th that's juggling for the writer and it's juggling for the artist. The number of characters to draw on these pages, like he, I hope, I'm sure he was getting paid quadruple because there was as much drawing <laughs> as, as would be on, oh my gosh. And then writing that many characters, and writing them in such a way that I, someone who doesn't know these Moloid children and doesn't know where the fish kids came from and doesn't even know that much about like, um, frankly, Scott Lang or, or Darla Deering, feeling like I knew them and got who they were after just a couple of pages of, as Tucker said, a couple of pages of like chat, not, not heavy duty expository language, but just the way that he introduces each character is to give you a little moment with that character, which is wonderful i should say the way they do it uh and and to me works so much better than exposition or so much better than telling you who they are and you get it and you know them and you care about them i have kids so i don't know if that's messed with my brain chemistry but i cared so much about these kids and they seemed like real kids to me yeah i yeah i have a two-year-old and uh, which i talk about incessantly through every episode <laughs> and so I think that's that might also now that I think about it now that you said so that might be part of why I loved this so much more in this read through is that feeling of a of being a parent and connecting with the children in, in a new way that I didn't have when I first read this mm -hmm. is it's so special. There are a couple of times when Medusa and Scott talk about being a parent. 
which is again, just great writing to have 30 characters on the page and to keep in mind which of them are have that experience and, and for whom it's heavy on their, their heads and hearts. And they're directing these little fish people. And then they'll say something like really heartrending about the responsibility or the risk. I also think this book does a really good job of talking about the actual accountability of having children on in a superhero situation, which you can't fully engage with because if you did, you would not write those books. You'd be like, this is dangerous. We're not doing it. But more than most treatments of children in comics, I feel like this book really treats the kids like kids and treats the, the adults like adults who adults who have kids to worry about. Yeah. You know, there's a reason that there's so many stories about kids where they get rid of the parents right away because um, it complicates the writing of fiction to have children when you have to have parents mm-hmm. and there's that relationship all the time. This really owns it, even though it's more of a found family. It owns those relationships, the responsibility, the, the ways that, it, so that we're making it, I'm making it sound kind of heavy. And again, it is not heavy. It's the least heavy book ever. It is silly, 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 silly. It's, it was, re, it was like a revelation in a way to, to read this. I, I guess it was, it's just strange because like, we all know that every person who's working on this book is, like a damn near hall of famer if not a straight up hall you know it's like of course it's amazing but i kept thinking as we were going through it and i actually went through and 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 was looking trying to find specific on sale dates because everyone of course knows about matt fraction and david aha's hawkeye mm-hmm. which was coming out concurrently with this ff run oh, wow. uh, and i think there had to have been some wednesdays where there was an ff and a hawkeye by matt fraction both coming out on the same day which is just crazy to think about and and i i really enjoy that because it's like i think the world now um and certainly the comics community and now beyond knows that hawkeye run mm-hmm. and but it feels to me it's sort of special and i'm really happy that we got to read this um for this reading club because it feels like the world knows and loves Hawkeye, and rightfully so. It's one of the best comics ever. But the streets will never forget FF. <laughs> this is the real ones. The real ones love FF. If you go and talk to somebody and they say Hawkeye, you go, oh, yeah, of course, amazing. But were you? do you know about FF, which came out at the same exact time and sort of struck similar chords, had similar ideas? Obviously, it's, it's sort of intrinsic to Matt Fraction as a writer, but... You know, this is sort of like this, the the less famous, like, but kind of equally as great series, which I just love thinking about. And it's just wild knowing that he was putting so much great stuff out at the same time. I think it's it's wild to think about and that kind of person's brain too, to to be doing Hawkeye and this book at the same time, because they're so you're right that they're similar, but they're also so different. Yeah, I like it when I can tell that the creators love what they're doing. And on this run, which I think like there's another Allred who came in on writing too, right? Lee. Is it Lee yeah. or? Yeah. So I want to shout him out or because some of those issues are also very good. But you can tell when someone loves what they're doing. And this book really feels, has this toy box feeling to it. Like um, like the creators are going, oh man, who else do I want to play with? You know, and the Silver Surfer is going to show up. And it doesn't feel random or casual. It feels like, and I love this character and, and, and now they're here. And it brings, it really get like that sort of joy of comics and that joy of the Marvel universe. And it isn't just like someone, um, you know, went through Wikipedia randomly picking characters. It feels like it was done with a lot of joy. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's tremendous joy throughout all this. Um, I want to talk about, uh, the She-Hulk of it all. You know, you, you had mentioned a little bit yes. getting into this and for the reason of, of doing your research for She-Hulk. Um, and I think as I was reading this, I was thinking about She-Hulk in particular because of our conversation coming up and your work on She-Hulk. And then there's the, the issue in which She-Hulk goes on her, not a date date with Wyatt Wingfoot. Mm-hmm. And I just, mm-hmm. I got such warm feelings throughout that entire episode because it's so, there's so many silly moments, but so many sweet moments. And it's like, it's one of the best rom-com issues of a comic book I've ever read. It's so tremendous. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about She-Hulk and romance and love and sex and and, and relationships. Um, You know, I write a lot of romance and that for me, Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie because of all the kissing. Um, I think that love is so important to so many of us and that in our lives, we want love everywhere and integrated. So I don't understand why we don't want it in more of our stories. This is like my sort of thing. So I always write a lot of love, a lot of romance. Um, I always want more of that for She-Hulk because she has been with a lot of people um, in kind of a great way, and sometimes in not great ways, sometimes in great ways. I love that she's dated a lot of people that when She-Hulk likes someone, she's like, oh, I like you, you are cute, you know? Uh, let's get together. Um, sometimes I get in trouble, but as as it would. So I just really love it about her, but I often want her to have, um, I want the relationship to be more on the page. This is what I want always. I wanna see the romance. I wanna see the conversations. I wanna see people together. She has been dating Wyatt Wingfoot like off and on forever there's so little of her and Wyatt actually in in the history of She-Hulk and Wyatt there's press like their their highlights reel would not be that interesting is is what I'm because I just think that's maybe not Mm. everybody's thing so to see She-Hulk and Wyatt actually having a moment looking in each other's eyes um talking about their past together which is again not mostly been on the panel but 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 we know is there God, it just felt like finally, finally, we're getting to see these two characters, these adults who have this long history. There's real romance. The page where they are dancing is so beautiful. Like that should be a poster. That could be. It's right. It's oh, so beautiful. And you could see the, the dance moves. And shout out to, again, Mike Allred, who is living friggin' yeah, legend. One of my favorites. And you can tell that he was just as you say, having fun, drawing people dancing. He's always drawn people dancing in his books and it, I will never stop absolutely mm-hmm. loving it. And that's one of the best pages of it, truly. He also draws such good eyes and he's got like um this very like heavy style and kind of blocky sometimes. And sometimes when you think of really blocky art, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel as fluid or expressive it feels sort of um, cold and fixed on the page but his art feels very blocky and then the colorings is feel very heavy and bright and yet really fluid and really expressive and when his characters look at each other you actually can see it in their eyes I mean I constantly would find myself thinking like look up you know Scott's eyes when he's talking about Cassie Wyatt's eyes when he's looking at Jen I thought just there's more like affection in these panels than I've seen in the history of Wyatt and Jen just so good Mm -hmm. and also while we're talking about my when you said that the dance could be a poster there's so many full pages like that there's one page 
this uh, breakout of what the Fantastic Four building looks like in every room. Those are my favorite. I love those. I never get enough of those kinds of pages. So oh. good. <laughs> if you have the opportunity to put that in a She-Hulk, I will eat that up. <laughs> In the in the eighties, in especially in our in the handbooks, there would you know Elliot R. Mm-hmm. Brown would do those cutaways for. I love the cutaways. Oh my god, that stuff is gorgeous. It's beautiful. I feel like I'm I'm bonding with you in this moment because I keep having to try to have this conversation with Nick Lowe because there's nothing I love more than and this is what their apartment looked like like more in the sense yeah. the sensational yeah, yeah, yeah. she hook they, they do like a full issue of what wasp's apartment looks like and there's this um commentary like oh my editor wants me to cut this I'm like no 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 more give me more <laughs> so yeah there, there's so many panels there's another thing at the very end where there's the act two-thirds of the page is the action of the the story and then one-third of the page is just robots <clears> fighting <throat> like like robot fights do you remember this part of it? And and it just goes on at the bottom of each page for, for like the whole yeah. book. And it's so well done and so beautiful. And the color, we should really talk about the color because I feel like there's no, I mean, this team of artists in color, it's just nothing like it. I mean, it's crazy when Joe Canones is the one who's like jumping on board, you know, to help out with, with yeah. like that's ridiculous. And it, I think your point, yeah, it's insane. And I, I think your point about, you know, not necessarily associating this style of art with a, with a certain like fleet footedness or agility or something, but it is so important and it comes through so wonderfully, not just in the action or in those scenes that are, you know, you know, there's a fight scene or something like that, but that's also so important. Yes. I feel like for the jokes, you know what I mean? Like you need to have that quickness. You need to have that, that responsiveness in the art and the the interplay between the words and what's, you know, and, and the visuals um, for so many of those jokes to land. One of my favorite ones is when um, old John Storm like flames up again and he's in that sort of like weird, like, I don't know, like a store or something like that. And he find, catches flame and he like zooms off and there's just like some like, you know, that's Matt Fraction. Duddy who works there. who. <laughs> I'm 90 percent sure right. that that's Matt. Whose yeah, yeah. beard catches on fire, <laughs> right. and he goes, "My precious beard," which catches on fire, and then he gets it like put out with the old Fantastic Four like comic or something. It's so funny. Anyway, like I, I think of those things in, in equal measure, and I think again, your point about the colors are so important because it is so important because I don't know. For me, it's just like this is what in my head like this is the platonic ideal Mm -hmm. of a marvel comic it's colorful it's bright it's um it's bold and uh you know it's it's like you know there's something wonderful to, to be to be found in any style that we're talking about but um the the fact that they were able to weave all of that into one thing is just is so amazing and it just leads me to like you know down my fantasy road of like fantasy castings of of books and people and like yeah that's my fantasy casting too all reds yeah call me let's make it happen come on folks Uh, (laughs) we're all reds coloring always strikes me because sometimes um you know you learn when you're if you were to take a design class they're like you know you want to use color uh judiciously right you want to use it's like it's kind of like only having one exclamation point on a page. You want to use your bright color, your intense colors in a way that you don't want to saturate everything. Well, her color breaks all of those rules. And yet 
always works. There were times when, um, you know, there's 40 characters on the page and everybody is so bright. And I would look at the page and think, why is this working so well? It seems like it should be, it should feel loud or it should feel chaotic or it should feel overwhelming. But instead it just feels fully realized. Like it's a real world that I'm in. Yeah. I mean, the, they are, they have been a couple for, for many, many years. And I think that sort of they mold into this beautiful team. But then when Joe comes on, there is a seamless transition yes. and it feels so natural for the book. There is no, you're not missing a beat. You're just getting a slightly different take. There's a little, Joe has a very specific uh, way of animating people mm -hmm. and there's reactions that are just different from the way Mike does. And part of what I love about Mike's art is it reminds me of Jack, and this is very specific and it's very like in my head, it reminds me of Jack Kirby's X-Men art when Chick Stone was inking him. And I think for me, Chick Stone is is the best inker, <laughs> is my favorite inker for Jack, especially of that time. And if you look at that line work and then you look at Mike's, you, you if you look at them side by side, you go, oh, I see how much Mike was influenced by Kirby, mm -hmm. which is obvious, but there's a very specific look and the way that the, there's like a, that sort of blockiness that you mentioned, Rainbow, but it's those lines are tight and they're they're so bold in times and it's so, it is so um, it, it, with purpose. Mm -hmm. It feels the book, the line work feels like it has such purpose. And then Laura's colors add a lot of that shading and a lot of the tone that brings out the warmth of the characters and really like helps it move. It is, yeah, they're, they're just so terrific. I want to jump on what you said about it. You, when Joe takes over for those books, you, you don't lose the thread and you don't lose the rhythm and you just stay in it. And I really think the colorist is the VIP in those situations because, you know, she's immersed in that book and she is so much a part of the tone of the book. So Joe comes on and she's still there and it just, it's, I feel like she was doing a lot of not heavy lifting, but a lot of like keeping you in that world so that you didn't it really working on runaways, uh, especially when Matt Wilson left, I had I really made me realize uh, in a way as a reader that I never had realized how much the colorist is keeping you inside of the world and keeping you feeling like, like you're not going, you know, and falling like, like it just like a smoother ride when you have the same colorist from yeah. book to book to book. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about She-Hulk. If you read this book looking for She-Hulk, which is what I was doing, you don't get that much of her. So my biggest complaint was as always, She-Hulk is one of a cast of so many people. I always want more of her, but what you get of her is so perfectly in character. Um, smart, funny, willing to mix it up. Okay, here's something I love about She-Hulk. She-Hulk is a real hero. You know, she really wants to do the right thing. She has a strong moral code. She doesn't apologize for it. Um, it's why she's a lawyer. Uh, and, and that moral code is evident throughout her life as a character. It's evident in this book. Like you would ask She-Hulk to babysit your kids. You would totally trust her with it. Um, and there are moments when some of the other adult, the other adults are are not doing right by the kids or doing right by, you know, she's thinking about what do, what is my accountability toward the kids? What is my accountability toward the Fantastic Four? What is it toward the public? What is, what is it toward me myself? Boy, I just loved seeing her in the hands of someone who under, of people who understand her. So even though we're only getting a couple of good scenes with She-Hulk in every book, she's always herself. She's so in character. She's, um, 
she's and also she's funny I love it when a funny writer writes She-Hulk because you know you can't get jokes from you know you, you need that so Matt's so funny she's so funny so I just wanted more of her also the if you were to go if you if you were to choose to read every single She-Hulk appearance <laughs> um <laughs> she has a friendship with Ben Grimm she's a very special friendship with him um they are, there are times when one or the other of them has been depressed where they have come together. She really understands his feelings. He's got, you know, pretty serious body issues that she connects with and he's been very open-hearted with her. So the Ben Grimm, She-Hulk dynamic is also not a big part of this book, but it's there. It's so well done. I love thinking about those characters having had a friendship over the years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that's right in the beginning of the run. And, you know, he's just like, Jenny, Jenny. <laughs> and like, there's just a warmth mm-hmm. and a love between the two of them that goes back to, to so long, even though they're punching each other. And it's it's really funny. Um, and then you, you take the Moloids who, you know, have the Ben, <laughs> who is, you know, like their their savior. And then they fall in love with the Jen and it's and they're shippers, just... right? They want Jen and Ben to get together. Yeah. And that's like an undercurrent throughout the whole book as they're trying to make them get Jen to fall in love with Ben, which there's a part of me that would love for, I think that Ben has a crush on Jen. And so there's a part of me that uh, finds that so, you know, like, oh, it really touches my heart. Um, mm-hmm. If you like Jen and Ben together, I mean, I'm not, you, you might want to pick up the new She-Hulk book. Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. I like that. Wow. Uh, this was this was great. This was um, as I expected, and I think Tucker is uh, as delighted as we all are. This was a hoot and a holler. Um, I'm so glad you brought this up to to read, and I really do hope we'll have you back on. Whether we're talking about some some of your She-Hulk or another She-Hulk run, or or just anything you want to talk about, you have an open invite to be back on the show with us. Yeah, be careful. Be careful. What you do. I live in Omaha, Nebraska. I don't have that much to do. This has been delightful. And yet anybody who wants to talk about She-Hulk, I'm open. Thanks, Rainbow. Thank you, Rainbow. Yeah, thanks, guys. Oh, boy. That was one of those. I could have just stayed on the line and talked to Rainbow for hours and hours and hours and hours. Not just a very extremely rare talent when it comes to writing Marvel Comics, but uh, an extremely rare talent when it comes to being a human being. (laughs) Rainbow is just the best um, in every single way. Had a great time. Also, I think we stopped recording. I hope we stopped recording because Rainbow told us what she was going to do with the Runaways, you know, if the book had continued on. And so that was another reason we could have stayed on and talked to Rainbow (laughs) forever because I just want her to to tell me Runaways stories. That was truly one of those that was too packed. Like we literally had to stop ourselves from talking about Runaways. We're like, okay, I'm cutting myself off. This is the last thing I'm going to say because we need to get to what we have to get to. Oh, the best. The best. All right, that wraps it up for our first episode of the year. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, and Jasmine Estrada. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And, you know, one of the things that really bums me out about working from home is that we didn't get the uh, the first day of the year tradition from Brad Barton where he comes in dressed as the New Year's baby and, you know, <laughs> and he's like, Happy New Year. And he's done it his entire time at Marvel. Um, but we didn't get it this year in person it was a sad one we got it all folks i mean bib binky diaper with the huge cartoon safety pin 
you know, playing all the hits. Bonnet, you can, can't forget the bonnet. The bonnet, oh man, come on, bonnet was my favorite part. Yep. All the hits played by Brad, quote, Bonnet Barton. Old Triple B. <laughs> I'm Ryan. <laughs> and I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.